one of the stories I highlight in the book is from the brass auto parts manufacturer, Favi, where the CEO uh, who was fresh to the scene was walking the floor and noticed someone waiting with a slip of paper by an equipment cage and asked what was going on. And the guy's like, oh, I'm getting new gloves. And the CEO said, well, what's the process here? What's going on? And the guy said, well, you have to you know, show your bad gloves to your manager and get permission and get a slip and shut down your machine and come over to this cage that keeps all the gloves under lock and key and then turn it in and they give you your size and you go back to your machine and start up work again. And the CEO was like, okay, okay, how much do the gloves cost? And the gloves are about five euro. And then he asked his uh, chief financial officer to go figure out, well, how much does it cost to have this person's machine down for a half an hour? And the answer was thousands of euros. So effectively, they had built this process and this apparatus to prevent theft. And in the process, they were thieving from themselves. <laughs> they were stealing, you know, thousands of euros per incident in service of protecting these gloves from you know, who knows, maybe somebody stole a glove once upon a time. The overreaction is part of our mindset of treating everything like a complicated system that we can fix, like a watch and making sure that we avoid all risk and making sure that we ensure maximum compliance instead of just treating people like adults and saying, oh, you know what? Somebody stole a pair of gloves. That sucks. I'm Aaron Dignan, and I'm the founder of an organization called The Ready that helps companies that are maybe are frustrated with their bureaucracy and ways of working that might feel inhuman find their way to more adaptive and human ways of working again. <laughs> I love that you already bring up the, like the word inhuman. <laughs> That's a pretty strong yeah, term. Hard to avoid. Yeah. So uh, when we actually, when we met some years ago, you had actually, you just started The Ready, your company, The Ready. I think you had just hired the first employee. So what's going on with the company now? Yeah, well, it's different than we expected. I mean, it's um, it's bigger. So we've got, you know, 20, 25 members around the world right now. It's far more remote and spread out than I expected. So I think we're in 10 or 12 cities because the work is where the work is. And it turns out that when we when we find a new you know client partner and organization to work with, we need people that are local and proximate to them that understand both the culture and that just have easy access to, to those teams. So while we do a lot of the work remotely with teams, there's still this need to be human beings in a room together, yeah. believe it or not. And so that means that we've become quite a distributed organization, which is um, which is fun, but it's also a challenge to figure out how to build and maintain culture when everybody is behind a screen. So what are the kinds of things that you're working on with the, with the company? Right now, there are, you know, half a dozen or more change projects happening around the world. So we're working with teams of a wide variety of sizes, actually, you know, small nonprofits, um, some governmental organizations, but all the programs have in common that the, you know, the teams they're working with are trying to reinvent their operating system, change the way they work and move away from bureaucracy. So they have quite a lot in common as well. And then we have just launched the book, uh, Brave New Work, which is why I'm here talking to you today. And along with the book, uh, you know, a suite of different products are, are being released as well. So we have some new things for people to play with out in the world. 
So one of the things that you talk about in the book is the future of work. But before we talk about the future, like, what are your thoughts on what's wrong with the way that we organize our work today? Well, I think, I mean, the number one thing that's wrong with it is that it's not considered that we just do what we've always done. And you can see that in, you know, engagement data that hasn't changed for 20 years. You can see that in people that are doing what their parents did at work in terms of the way they approach meetings and authority and structure and budgeting and, you know, things of this nature, that there isn't a lot of evolution built into the way we work, you know, while everything else is changing. So yeah. I think that's the first scary thing. Yeah, I think I think there's this blueprint of an organization that was made like a hundred years ago, and we still use that exact same blueprint, even though like we might change some of the details, but it's still the same blueprint. Basic idea, yeah. There's going to be uh, managers and people that get told what to do. There's going to be silos that are functional in nature. We're going to, you know, grow the thing as, you know, as fast and as far as we can. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and it isn't serving us all that well anymore. I think, you know, if it ever did, it certainly helped us uh, deal with some issues of, of productivity and consistency and scale at the turn of the century. But now in the face of all the complexity and, and dynamism that we see and, and frankly, just higher standards, higher expectations at a, at a human level, it's not great. And so we have we have quite a lot of bureaucracy. We have red tape. We have uh, people that feel immobilized by all the rules and policies and approvals and chains of command around them. People that are constantly waiting for the approval of some particular leader or ego in their midst. People that are not getting enough uh, feedback in real time. And we have organizations that are just missing the mark, uh, both for customers and in terms of their goals, just not resilient enough, not adaptive enough, not responsive enough for the mission that they've set out for themselves. You know, it's time for a change. So I think the, the goal that I was really getting at in the book is first, can we just pay attention? Can we, can we start to care again about the way we work as something that we actually craft and shape and change? Yeah. And then, uh, and then, you know, while we're at it, Can we build a new science of it, a new theory with principles and, and heuristics and mindsets that will help us make better choices in terms of the design of these things? For the time being, let's assume that there was a point in time where this, this blueprint of an organization that we've been talking about, uh, that this actually worked and produced good results. What are your thoughts on like what changed in the environment? Like What changed in the world for that blueprint to no longer produce such good results? Well, I think it's mostly just um, different forms of complexity. So if you look at, you know, if you roll the clock back 60 years, there's, you know, two brands of cereal. Um, there, there are, you know, the options and the choices in the marketplace are, are far fewer. There's a lot more white space to fill. There are a lot of, you know, things yet to be invented. And then you roll the clock forward to today and there are 16 different kinds of Oreos. Um, there, you know, there's an enormous amount of of mass and and change and innovation in the marketplace and it just turns really really fast in addition to that we're super interconnected now in ways that we weren't then i mean the, the nature of how global the economy is how interdependent it is is unusual that's both true between companies and between nations and then you have uh you know people that have now come up through you know in a world where things were consistent and safe and where quality was relatively high who have raised expectations, who want more of work, who want more of their colleagues, who want more of the companies they choose to shop with and buy from. So there, there's a kind of a different bar in terms of inclusion and equity and engagement and development and 
what do I get when I when I plunk down my money? I can buy a pair of shoes a hundred years ago, but now I want to buy a pair of shoes that says something about me and who I am and, and what my impact in the world is. And I want that to be a carbon neutral decision. And I want that to mean that somebody in a developing nation gets an extra pair of shoes because I bought them. And, you know, there's just a, a different standard. So I think you put all those things together in the hopper and shake it, you know, you get an environment that is fairly uncertain where there's a lot of a lot of potential futures at any given time and as we know um you know when things are uncertain you need a lot more test and learn sense and respond um you know the ability to steer as an organization and and having being locked in to a particular set of choices or methods or mindsets can be uh quite caustic what about your view on the future of work? Like, what what should the future of work be now that we we understand that the the environment has changed and is a lot more uncertain and there's a lot more complexity? There's two ideas that I bring up in the book to try to sum it all up because there's a lot of words floating around in the future of work space. Whether you start talking about autonomy or distributed authority or transparency or participation or trust or equity or wholeness, there's there's so many ways to talk about it. I just tried to really distill it. And, and what I ended up with was basically two ideas. One was what I called people positive, which is basically just the idea that people are worthy of trust and respect, that people are um, motivated not by carrots and sticks, but by autonomy, mastery, and purpose, and connectedness, all the things that self-determination theory tells us, and that people are chameleons, that we sort of map to the environment and the context that we uh, that we sit in. So if you put someone in an environment that rewards silo behavior and politicking, and they will start to look like that after time. But that's not their nature. The nature of people is one of collaboration and connection and responsibility and seeking learning and seeking opportunities to grow. And that we just, we sort of need to get out of our own way. We need to unlearn those other patterns and be people positive. So that's the first idea that I think is true. And there's lots of different ways to make that manifest at the workplace. I don't I don't have a prescription. I think it's the value and the principle that matters. And then the second one was complexity conscious, which, as we just talked about, is this acknowledgement that like there are different contexts. There are complicated problems, complex problems, chaotic, disordered, simple, etc., and systems as well that match those different contexts. And so we need to make sure that we bring the right tool for the job. You know, the organization is not a watch. It is not predictable. It is not causal. It is not linear. Um, and neither is the market. And so that means that we need to bring the tools of a complex system to a complex problem or a complex context. Having that consciousness in in our leaders and in our colleagues means that we won't try to apply the wrong constraints and that we won't be frustrated when things don't go the way we want them to go. So those are the two mindsets that I found. And, you know, the people positive one leads to these very human centric cultures that are very inclusive and equitable, etc. The complexity conscious mindset leads to cultures that are very agile and lean and adaptive and focus on optimization and learning and figuring out, you know, how the world actually works rather than just speculating how it's going to work in a plan. And when you put the two together, of course, you get this really interesting dynamic tension of how do we create the ultimate learning organism that's also conscious of the people that are inside it, that takes care of them as well. 
one of the things that like that I think about quite a lot is is the uh, the idea that like if we talk about the Kinevin uh, framework and and we have the obvious domain domain the compl complicated domain the complex domain the chaotic domain and so on and and when we think about uh, like a larger organization any larger organization it's never going to fit into one of those domains it's going to be operating <laughs> in several of those domains and right. How should that change the way that we operate the company? Because we have different parts of the company that we basically need to operate very differently because they're in different domains. Yeah, well, I mean, that's sort of the consciousness that I'm getting at. And I think that certainly when you think about the different processes and problems that we solve in a business, you're right, they're going to live across the spectrum, right? You could be a firefighter engaging with a chaotic environment. You could be somebody working at FedEx ensuring that an envelope gets from point A to point B, which is filled with a lot of complicated moments and interactions that that really, you know, respond to a checklist. You can be figuring out a new product in a startup or in or in a, you know, inside a large organization that is completely in the complex domain where we really don't know what's what and we don't know which way's up yet and things are moving and changing. I think we need to be present for all those and and characterize the problems and the opportunities that we face by having that discussion, right? Is this predictable or unpredictable? Will this likely surprise us or not? How much do we know? How much do we need to depend on randomness or exploration to find out and just have the dialogue? And then when it comes to things like culture and the organization as a whole, I think we have to accept that it's complex and just say, yeah, that's what it, that's the nature of when 10,000 people come together you have a complex system. <laughs> yeah. It's a complex adaptive system, and we need to be mindful of that. And that means that we need to interact with it as such. And that will change the way we approach change management. It'll change the way we approach culture and, and HR and all these sorts of things from really a very complicated, friendly approach of fixed job titles and band levels and structures and functional silos and you know all these things that try to make it a watch to something more emergent. One of the concepts that you also uh, talk about in the book is organizational debt. What does that mean? Essentially, everybody knows what financial debt is. You borrow money and then you have to pay it back with interest and the interest kind of burns. Most people who work in software know about technical debt, which is you know when we write the code early on and we take shortcuts or we do things that are not going to be infinitely scalable or interoperable, then later on we have problems with the software that we have to fix and refactor. And then org debt is sort of the same thing at a, at a company level, at a policy level, which is to say all the assumptions and policies and procedures and practices and structures and rules that are no longer serving us, but that we haven't edited, that we haven't removed, that we haven't updated. And the reality is that there are an enormous amount of these things. If you go talk to a team at the edge of any large organization, they will immediately point to policies that are getting in their way, the things that nobody understands anymore, even meeting rhythms. I, you know, I met with a team that had been having this monthly meeting around strategy and literally no one knew why they had it, including the boss. And, uh, you know, there's this study that was done uh, with monkeys. I actually heard um, Seth Godin talking about this recently on his podcast, where when they went up and climbed toward the top of this structure, they got sprayed with a hose. So, of course, when new monkeys would come into this area, these trained monkeys that had been sprayed would stop them from climbing that structure. They'd be like, hey, you don't want to climb that because you're going to get sprayed. And over the course of many weeks and months, they started removing the monkeys that had ever been sprayed until none of the monkeys had been sprayed. But they all still refused to climb the structure, and they all prevented new monkeys from climbing the structure. So effectively, they were reinforcing a policy that they didn't even understand. 
And I feel like that is 100% what's happening in organizations <laughs> when you look at our budgeting practices and meeting practices and structures and way decisions are made and, and you know, chain of commands. They're all laden with the organizational debt of decisions that we didn't make or that we don't understand that might not be serving us anymore. Um, and we don't even have a mechanism for changing that stuff on a regular basis. It's only the grand reorg every three years that changes structure and policy is barely ever changed. One of the ways that we use the concept of, let's say, technical debt is that we can have a conscious decision that if we implement something this way, that's going to result uh, in some technical debt. We can't really measure how much, but at least we have some concept of like how to discuss the implications of the decisions that we are making. Do you have ways in which we can use organizational, the concept of organizational debt in a similar manner? For starters, I agree with that analogy. And I think all decisions are debt at some level, right? As soon as you make a decision, there are consequences that are going to pop up later. So you want to delay decisions until you have more information. So one of the ways we can do that is by not doing blanket, large scale policy and structural changes without information. And that's what we do a lot. We'll be like, all right, new rule, travel freeze, new rule, gloves are under lock and key, new structure. Here's the PowerPoint. I made it over the weekend of the new structure instead of testing and learning our way into these things. So one way to reduce debt is to wait till we have more information. And we can do that by having smaller scale experiments with shorter time horizons where we play with some of these alternative practices, play with solutions or ways to manage these problems and find out what helps and what hurts, right? So maybe, you know, instead of jumping to the equipment cage with the gloves, maybe we just put a sign up that says, you know, don't take more than two pairs of gloves a month. Does that solve the problem, right? Does that give us enough data? Or maybe we just have an all-hands meeting where we talk about it and have a dialogue. Maybe that's enough. Or maybe doing nothing is enough, right? So I think testing and learning into it is one way to, to deal with that. The other reality is that in a system like software, the actual code base is a little bit more of a complicated system. It's got a lot of interconnected parts, but it can be fixed. It can be understood by an expert. And so we can predict better the debt that we might create. We can't get it perfect, to your point, because we don't know where we're going. But we have a much better sense of like what are the likely outcomes. In organizations, I think sometimes the choices we make have cultural implications that we can't even begin to understand. You know, it makes a lot of sense now, but then be scale by 50% and it's completely backwards. So the important thing there is not to try to guess, but to refactor often. So I talk about continuous participatory change. That means every team at every level all the time is doing a second job. And that second job is considering the way of working, considering the policy structure and the agreements we've made with each other, and just making sure that it's still serving us. And as soon as it's not, starting that path of trying small, safe-to-try experiments for alternatives. That concept of continuous participatory change, can you talk a little more about that? Like, How does that manifest in an organization? Yeah, well, I mean, as I was writing the, the change part of the book, the, you know, how do we change how we change, it became really apparent to me that, you know, most change models are linear. They're from two. You imagine a future state, you try to close the gap. And as a result, they're, they're time bound. And often uh, because they're painful, we avoid them until the last minute. So we don't do the change regularly. We do it once every two years or every three years or when it's a fire, when it's an emergency. The reality is that you have lots of different cultures at the same time inside any company. You have teams in different stages of development, different ways of working, different contexts. And what became apparent to me is the continuousness of the change is really important because it keeps us moving forward in the right way. It keeps us 
edging our way in all directions towards p- possible futures, the, the adjacent possible. And the participatory part is about recognizing that as human beings, because we value autonomy and purpose and connectedness and relatedness, being told how to change, having change happen to us is not something that we're super hip to. We don't really, <laughs> we don't really respond well to that. And that's why, you know, 90% of all change programs fail because they're done to people. Yeah. Um, but if you invite people to change, if you invite them to answer the question, what's stopping you from doing the best work of your life? What's stopping you from achieving our purpose or our mission? And then they find those answers. And then you say, great, what are you willing to try to move us forward on those things? You suddenly have a very different conversation. And so it's kind of this open space way of moving things forward. That's what the participation is about. So you put the two together and you have this always going, always participatory, ever present change process, which is milder because it's incremental. It's it's movements that are made when they're, when the time comes to make them. It's controlled in the sense that these are safe to try adjustments usually that people have taken on themselves. And, you know, and in that way, it just works a lot better for a human system. One of the things that uh, you hear people talk about often is the need to change the culture of the companies. So what are your thoughts on changing organizational culture? You know, I come down on this with with a lot of other folks in our space who's who say that, you know, culture is an emergent phenomenon, but it's not something you can change. Yeah. You know, one of the one of my sort of Twitter friends, Niels, always talks about culture as a shadow, yeah. right? It's like you can see it, but you can't actually affect it directly. And I think that's right because it is it is a social phenomenon. It's something that occurs between people as the group emerges. And so it's not something you can directly go and change. You can't put new values on a poster or a coffee mug in the office and suddenly the values of the group have changed. That's not even a real thing. The group doesn't really even have values, right? Only individuals do. And then they they interact with each other and they kind of emerge into this cultural identity. So to me, the more interesting thing, you know, if you can't change culture because it's because it's a shadow, and then people often go to, well, let's change the individuals, right? Let's let's coach these leaders and change their mindsets, and you know, essentially now you're telling people what to think, right? It's it's colonialism, as Dave Snowden would say, and so that's that's equally dangerous, right? That we're going to somehow implant our beliefs in someone else's head. So all that really is left is to change the container, to change the system change the aquarium around the fish. Um, And that's something that we can do because we own it together. So we can change how we meet. We can change how we decide. We can change what the spaces that we live in look and feel like. We can change the roles that we hold and the structures that we inhabit. And when we do that, especially when we do that with our values in mind, then we create these really interesting system changes that affect both the individuals and the culture. So suddenly we have a culture that feels more inclusive or that feels more innovative or that feels more present. And it's not because we changed it directly, but because we changed some of the things that we can change, that we can agree upon together. um, And the knock-on effects of those were positive. The opposite is true as well, right? You can do things that actually change the culture for the worse. So the job is always to be feeding and starving the phenomenon that we seek or seek to avoid. This way of thinking about culture and changing culture is actually really empowering because if you think about culture, like we talked, it's it's intangible, it's abstract, it's really hard to change. But when we think about like 
that culture is a shadow or culture is an emergent feature or it emerges from from the system then the system and its conditions and the container that is that is concrete that is something that we can touch we can see what the practices are we can see what the system is like and those are things that we can actually change and then when we change those also the culture changes so i think looking at culture uh from this viewpoint makes the whole like changing culture thing a lot more actionable yeah i'll give you an example so right now at the ready one of the things we're you know struggling with is because it's a very remote culture if people are not present in some of our shared forums like slack because they're busy with clients suddenly the culture feels oh are we a little disconnected right are we you know are we as there for each other as we want to be and obviously we have you know moments in the year when we all come together in person and it's quite you know quite incredibly connected but it's easy a couple months into the work for everybody to be kind of in their corner so you look at that and you go okay the culture feels a little disconnected now what can we do about that well all we can really do is probe the system by trying something and seeing what happens so we might try what if we do you know a book club what if we hold a different kind of you know open zoom meeting what if someone does office hours what if we use a bot inside slack that randomly pairs us together for virtual coffee right we there are all these different experiments we can try to see what helps and what hurts and the only thing we can do is to try them and then pay attention be be noticing how it affects the dynamic and then if it affects it positively then how do we feed that how do we support it how do we enable it and if it doesn't really help then let's ditch that and move on to the next idea in the quiver in the direction of what we want the culture to be okay so we talked about changing culture another topic that we already covered or uh, touched on is is that we need to be more complexity aware within our organization so how does that change the way that we should look at transformations or or the way that we change organizations i think the main thing is just to stop treating it like it's something that happens in phases you know the idea that somehow we're going to uh, all be in the you know burning platform stage and then we'll all be in the quick win stage and then we'll all be in the scale stage there's a great desire especially in large organizations to fix it at scale you know one and done right so we have this problem with alignment or this problem with strategy or this problem with execution we'll make the adjustment and then we're done and then it's fixed and we do it to everybody at once and while there are certain changes that require collective action or collective, you know, alignment. An awful lot of the things we're trying to get at happen in teams and between teams in much smaller ways. And so part of it is actually just recognizing that and saying like, yeah, let's just solve for what's alive and what's real inside teams where they are, wherever they are right now. And if we identify as a series of teams that there are bigger opportunities, then let's bring everyone together have the conversation, talk about what we're willing to try and try something together. But not treat it as something that's happening to everybody all at once or that's something that's happening to everyone uh, from a top-down, you know, kind of standpoint, but rather something that's happening within the system in different ways at different times and different places that we all have agency over. And if it requires big collective action, then we'll galvanize that. And if it doesn't, then we'll find out through through these, you know, sort of smaller interventions. One more concept that I want to talk briefly about is the concept of an operating system. What is the concept of an operating system for an organization? I think when we were doing this work with organizations and when I started working on the book as well, we were just searching for a way to help make sense of the fact that there are all these choices and assumptions 
in an organization, in an institution that become kind of a foundational layer for how everything works and how everything emerges. And, you know, there are assumptions about when and how we should budget and what should be in the conference room and how we should decide and who should do what. And there are actual principles and actual practices in the organization that become the norm. And then everything that we do, the work that we do all kind of lives on top of that. So I was, uh, you know, searching for a way to articulate that. And the concept of an OS is a reasonably good way to do that. There are operating systems all around us in both technology and in nature, right? You know, our DNA is an operating system and, uh, you know, physics is an operating system. These are constraints, right, that, you know, force the behavior that happens on top of them. And so the OS was just a way to say, hey, yeah, there are decisions and assumptions in organizations that shape what is possible. And then we need to be conscious of those. And so we identified the spaces that seem to matter most in terms of those assumptions and decisions. And those were things like structure and authority and information and resource allocation and compensation and mastery and so on. And these were the spaces where kind of the future of work was unfolding. And so that became the frame to say, all right, these are the spaces to play. This is the ways that they're interconnected and, and that they pull on each other and tug on each other as we try things. This is why it's so hard to change because all this stuff is interconnected and it's all supporting one way of doing things. So to then try to change that, you know, you're kind of playing with the spider's web. So it gave us the visual language for that. It gave us the words for that. And, you know, it's not perfect. It's not a mutually exclusive or comprehensively exhaustive framework. It's just... 12 spaces where things are really rowdy right now and that seem to be at the basis of how we how we show up to work. And that that gives us the the ability to then say, all right, well, let's consider this stuff and let's answer the question, what do we believe and what do we do in each of these spaces? Closing off, you you just finished writing a book. What did you learn about yourself through the process of writing? Well, you know, I have one tattoo which says discipline because it's the one thing that I wish I had more of. <laughs> um, you know, I'm a bit of a procrastinator. I'm a bit of a, you know, kind of lily pad jumper, ADD kind of uh, kind of thinker. I love to, you know, follow the whims of my curiosity. So the book project is always a challenge. This is my second one. And it means building a discipline and building a rhythm, a kind of a shipping rhythm. So I did the, you know, whole three hours a day, first thing in the morning, just write however garbage it is. And then at lunch, decide if you're going to do more or do something else for the better part of a year, including, you know, weekends, weekdays, every, every day. And what I learned is, you know, like anything, practice makes you better. Uh, you know, when I started getting 300 words out was impossible. By the time I was done, I could write 2000 words in a set down without an issue. The great irony, of course, of writing books, at least for people like me that are not full-time journalists, is that you build that muscle, you get really strong, and right around the time that you're actually good at writing, you're done with the book, <laughs> and you spend the next two years promoting it, and you don't write anything. So I've sort of noticed that and had a chuckle at that. Yeah. But yeah, it's something that I enjoy doing. It forces you to think about your own beliefs and your own kind of stories in your head at a level of detail that you're just not used to. You sort of think you've, you've mastered something or that you really understand something. And then you sit down to write it in a way where you know it will be reviewed and scrutinized and studied. And suddenly you're like, oh man, I, I think I need to go back and read that thing again or look at that thing again or make sure this statistic is right. It, you know, it really, it raises your game. So I, I, I appreciate the process even, even though it's quite painful. 